invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're once again in our uh, study of the Beatitudes, and really this is the last sermon in our summer series on the Beatitudes, which conclude with our uh, set of verses today. For 11 weeks we've been talking about these crazy upside-down kingdom ideas that Jesus comes up with, things like blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are meek. And it's all kind of crazy-making because we're not used to thinking that way in our culture, in our time. But Jesus says this is what really good life is about, living in these ways and following him in these very ways ourselves. So in Matthew 5 today, we're going to look at the last verses of our, se- of our section, of our uh, series in verses 13 through 16. And they really get at the point of this, when you live the good life, Ultimately, you'll find out that it affects not only our lives personally, but the lives of the world around us. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, starting in verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, and for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people put a lamp lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we'll start today talking about a man named Alexander Fleming. Alexander Fleming went on vacation, paid attention when he got back, and it changed the world. Now, some of you, most of you probably don't know who Alexander Fleming is, but uh, he was a Scottish physician, a microbiologist, who was working in a lab in London back in the 1920s. Fleming was in a hurry to go on vacation, and like anybody in his lab, he had his little Petri dishes and decided he would just shove them to the side, get them out of the way, and leave them alone and take off on vacation. When he got back on September 3, 1928, he found in his lab a bunch of Petri dishes covered with bacteria all over them. As a result, he gathered them together at his workstation. He dumped them into a vat of Lysol to clean them out. 
But as he was putting them one after the other into the vat to clean them up, he found one particular Petri dish that was interesting. It actually had on it uh, a little bit of mold. And around the mold was a clear circle where all around the circle was the bacteria. Uh, Alexander Fleming began to look into what this was, and what he discovered was that whatever this thing was around the mold would kill bacteria. In fact, what Alexander Fleming had just discovered is what you and I call penicillin. Of course, most of you know that that is the very thing that we use as an antibiotic today, and has had a widespread effects for world health, even our own personal health for many of us today. Here's the thing. Fleming went on vacation. When he got back, he paid attention. And as a result, it profoundly changed the world for good. Now, we live in times where there is a lot of talk of changing the world. It's something that is inherent to many of us that we all want, whether it's our own personal world or the world at large. But in our, case, in our world, most people want to change the world with a big bang, More often than not, though, it's the small things like Alexander Fleming did, those unexpected things that have lasting, eternal effects. And in Matthew 5 today, Jesus is going to tell us his plan to change the world, his plan to change the world through you as followers of Jesus Christ. When we come to Matthew 5, 13 through 16, right after he tells us what the good life is in the Beatitudes, Jesus lays out what a thriving life and the effects of it will be in the world around us. Now, sometimes we we experience the good life. Sometimes we live out the Beatitudes. We follow Jesus, and we wonder, what difference will it make? Jesus is going to answer that question for us today in in, in Matthew chapter 5. And so what does he do? He tells us in the very first verse of our text, in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. And then jumping over the 14, he says, you are the light of the world. He tells us right off the bat what impact we can have in the world. But here's what's interesting about these verses that you should know here in this text. And it's that the, the, the Greek here, if you were to look at the Greek, doesn't just say you all are the, the salt of the earth or the light of the world. Jesus is saying you alone, as Christians, are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. You are it. Not anybody else in the world. Followers of Jesus are exactly that. And you got to wonder, why would Jesus say that? That feels like, like a big thing that Jesus is saying. Well, he's not just addressing Christians and what we bring to the table, which we'll come to in a moment, but he's also addressing the real issues that are in our world today. This text tells us what Christians are supposed to be in the world, but it also tells us something about the world itself. And what is it saying? Well, Jesus is talking about very real problems in our world. He's talking about how the world is both decaying and is in darkness. It's decaying and it's in darkness. Now, I want to say this. There's much to appreciate in our time, in our world. I can tell you I really appreciate that God has blessed us in our time with excellent medical uh, care and help. My own wife's getting that kind of help right now with her disease. It's a blessing to live in our world today with all that we have, material blessings, prosperity, freedom. We can name so many things we're blessed with. 
However, it doesn't take long to look at the news on, sun, on Sunday or every day online. It doesn't take long to note that we have clear problems such as war, corruption in business, political scandals, degradation of the family, the oppression of ideas in the academic world, racism, sexism, and culture wars around every ethical issue you can imagine these days. Jesus is telling us, our world, though it once was created good, is now fallen and is decaying and is actually dark in its nature. Now, in physics, they have a law. I don't know if you've ever heard of this, those of you who took a physics class, called the second law of thermodynamics. And the second law of thermodynamics goes like this. It's about heat transfer, where heat runs downhill towards something. Energy runs downhill, if you want to put it that way. It runs towards disorder, is what uh, even physicists would say. If you put something hot near something cold, the cold will cool down the hot. The hot won't heat up the cool. In the same way, Jesus is saying there is a spiritual second law of thermodynamics, if you will, that over time things move towards spiritual disorder. We know this from experience. Things may start well, but over time there becomes corruption and pollution in whatever begins. And ethically it may blow up, spiritually it may decline. And Christianity says, as Jesus is saying in our text, that that's because the world is dark. That's because the world is decaying in its very nature. Now, in the middle of this reality of darkness and decay, Jesus tells us to be salt of the earth and the light of the world. Now, let's get clear on what that means for you and for me in that. When Jesus rescues us from sin and death and into the good life that we've talked about in the Beatitudes, he is also saying he intends for us to be a part of the world and to make a difference in the world with that new life we have. He wants us to share the good life with a dark and decaying world, to influence the world for Christ. Jesus gives these two metaphors to describe that influence we have. In the first century, Salt and light were common things used just as we use in our homes every day. They were subtle but important parts of everyday living. They would have been the things that Jesus was used to using in his own household and his own life. Let's take salt, for example. Salt was used for several reasons in Jesus' time. In the Old Testament, as in Jesus' time, it was used as a seasoning for food and even for offerings. It made things taste better. Think about that today when you have something like corn of the cob, popcorn, or maybe a good steak. By itself, it's okay, but when you put the salt on, it's just something that pops about it, right? The salt enhances the take, taste. It takes something and makes it better. Salt not only made things more appealing in the taste, but is also used as a preservative in that time. And I think this is particularly instructive that Jesus uses this for God's people in the world. And it's this, the ancient world, they didn't have ice or refrigerators. So the way they kept meat and preserved it was to rub salt into the meat so the fish or the meat would last for a season. What has salt got to do with us then? When we are in the world, just being Christian. Just living out our life with Jesus in the, the mundane things of life even. Living the Beatitudes where we live in our spheres of influence 
We can make the world a better place. We make Christ more appealing. Even more, we preserve the world from declining into further corruption and darkness. Leslie Newbigin talks about how sometimes when we interact with the world, we usually like to think in simplistic terms, like I'm either for the world or against the world. But the best way to think about it, I think, as Leslie Newbigin says, is this. We're for the world against the world. They go together. Sometimes you actually are for the world against the world to keep it from decaying. Let me, let me explain what that looks like. When you go to your job in the marketplace, when you go to school, your job is to be a Christian and to work with integrity and honesty and to raise the quality of what's going on in your environment, whether it be business, whether it be school, to do your best with excellence for the glory of God. When you as a believer work and do your job well, even showing the business what is a, is a good way for everyone involved, what is genuine good, God gets glory in that. People know what goodness looks like. Some of you may have heard of trickle-down economics. That's been a controversial thing over the last 50 years. Well, what Jesus is talking about here is trickle-down spirituality where you show up in an environment and automatically, if you're being Christian in your ways, and yeah, you're broken, you'll do some dumb things, but overall, living the trajectory of pleasing God, it will change the environment with your very presence as salt in that environment. Jesus, and this is going to be, you need to own this, Jesus puts you where you are for a reason, right now, providentially, you are for the world against the world to be salt and to preserve, even enhance the environment you're in. So that's the first metaphor Jesus uses. What about light? That's the second metaphor he uses. Jesus says we are the light of the world. What does light do? It brings illumination. It shows us what's actually happening in a dark place. Jesus even goes on to use the language of being a city on a hill. If you were walking in the ancient Near East, walking around a region, uh, you, usually cities were built up on a hill because that's where you, would, you could uh, protect your people better because they didn't have airplanes. Now you build a city on a hill, well, you get bombed pretty easily. But then they didn't have that. They were up on a hill. And here's what happened. If you were walking at night, you could walk and it'd be hard to see on the trail or whatever road you were walking on. But then in the distance, you could see the city sitting up on a hill. You could see it from a distance. It stood out with its lights being on throughout the city. You experience this when you fly in an airplane. You fly in an airplane at night, and you're flying over the vast parts of our country that are dark, and you can barely see anything. But then when you come in to Charlotte, Douglas International Airport, you see very clearly the city around you. That's the imagery Jesus is using here. Light shows what's really going on. It tells us the truth. And not only does it tell us the truth, light is imagery in the Bible for holiness. For holiness. Jesus is saying that we are to be holy in all kinds of situations with the light. If I can use Leslie Newbegin again. Sometimes we're for the world against the world, but sometimes we're against the world for the world. And what that means is we resist things in the world by shining light and saying, no, don't go there, go this way. 
This is what we really want to do in darkness in our world. We shine a light to be conspicuously holy. Conspicuously holy. Now, what does that look like in everyday life? Well, we live in a culture that presents more and more ethical dilemmas to us and things like the sanctity of human life and and human sexuality. We'll hold off on human sexuality for now. That is a very explosive issue these days. But I will talk about how our job is to bring light and truth into our culture and our environment and to persuade our culture with scripturally informed arguments and truth, especially about something like abortion. Abortion. When we talk about abortion, we can speak prophetically to a culture regarding political discourse. And we can do so with holiness. And we do so uh, saying we not only believe it, but we want to interject ourselves into a situation. That's what being light also is and being holy is. You not only say, we don't want to do abortion, we want to preserve the life of a child, but we also want to take care of the mother who's in crisis. We want to care for her as well. There are two victims in every abortion, if you really think about it. It's not just the child. It's the woman as well. I say we as a church have to live and to speak with light sometimes, and it's an uncomfortable situation when you speak of these things in our culture. But our job is to be against the world for the world, to resist what is darkness and bring light to it, saying this is what is a better way. Now, why would I say all these things? Why be with salt and light? Why is this such a big deal to Jesus? Well, I'd submit to you this is exactly what Jesus himself was in his culture. The gospel was this, that Jesus interacted with the world as salt and light himself. He was conspicuous in his holiness, in his light. He was in the, for the world, against the world, and sometimes against the world, for the world. He was the perfect example of salt and light and lived and cared for people in such a way that they walked away from his ministry and experiences with him praising God for it. People praised God when he taught, when he healed. And that's why Jesus in John 8 says, I am the light of the world. Now you've got to think at this point, Jesus in John 8 says, I am the light of the world. You've got to think, well now wait a minute, I thought Jesus said, you are the light of the world. Well if you were to go to John chapter 9, you find out Jesus says, I am the light of the world as long as I am in the world. The implication being he was going to leave, and indeed he did leave with his ascension. And the implication being that here in our text, he is bestowing on us the call to carry on his ministry with light and with love in the world. What Jesus is saying is this, is that you and I can actually influence the world and make a difference when we follow him. We can change the world. Now, here's the thing. In order to be light and make a difference in the world, you and I have to receive the light of Christ and believe on him ourselves. You heard it from Josh earlier in that saying. You have to actually believe on Jesus as light to become light. You cannot be light and salt until you've had Christ's salt rubbed into you and Christ's light reveal you. Reveal your need and sin, your lack of love for the world, or your inordinate love for the world, and then at the same time reveal in the light his cross where he forgave us for those. 
when you and I take in Jesus and let his light and salt affect us personally, we then can go out and impact the world as well with good things that happen in our lives, with good influences we bring to the table. But here's the thing. Not only will you have an impact in the world, but hard things will happen when you do good and try and impact the world for the glory of God. How do I know that? Verses 10 through 12 of our text talk about blessed are the persecuted. Blessed are those who who revile you and say all kinds of evil falsely against you because of me. You see, when you live this life, you're going to get pushback. When you try to be holy, you're going to get pushback. And what happens in us is when we experience this pushback, we respond in a few ways. In fact, I would suggest to you there's two ways that Christians and churches and all kinds of people who call on Jesus respond when the pushback comes. And here's where they are. They are retreat and ruin. Retreat and ruin. Let me explain. Jesus in our text talks about how salt can lose its saltiness, or how uh, you can actually put a basket over a light and you can't see the light. What is he talking about? Why is he even bringing that up? Because he knows that when we struggle and when we run from him and our unique duty to engage the world, we are putting a basket over the light. We are uh, eradicating the saltiness of salt. And retreat and ruin is how we do that. Let me explain retreat. Many, for example, retreat from the world and try to create their own little Christian ghetto in the family, in a church, or even a subculture. This is what monastics and some forms of fundamentalism have done. Retreat is based on a posture of fear or even anger at the world and responds with an attempt to control the situation by separating from the world. It is a posture of being out of the world and not of the world. It's exactly what Jonah did in the book of Jonah. Remember, Jonah was called to go and to share the gospel with the Ninevites, and the Ninevites were the same people who actually attacked his country sometime prior. And he's thinking, no way am I going to reach out to those people. He goes the opposite direction. He separates himself from God's purpose for him. And out of his self-righteousness, out of his actual uh, Refusal to engage, he disobeys God. What we don't want to be is Jonah running from God in retreat. What we know from history is those who withdraw and retreat end up eating each other and imploding as a movement. Finding fault with the world and living there and being happy with that all the time ends up getting into your soul so that you start finding fault with even Christians around you. You are a chosen race, is what 1 Peter 2 says. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's an engaging posture that Jesus and Peter are talking about. That's retreat. The the other side of this is ruin. Ruin occurs when believers or families or churches try to compromise with the world. They are in the world and of it. 
They try to make Christ and Christianity something the world will respect. And doing so compromises the gospel and the Christian life. The posture of ruin is FOMO. You guys know what FOMO is? Fear of missing out. That's what FOMO is. And that's what ruin actually begins with. It's an attempt to become so relevant that it becomes irrelevant. And Jesus says in Matthew 6, 8, do not be like them. That is, do not be like the Gentiles who are running from God. No, instead, we are to engage. And you've got to know this. To engage the culture, you will always feel uncomfortable. Always. So you need to get used to it. I don't say I enjoy it or that we'll enjoy it, but that's exactly the life that we are called to, is discomfort while engaging with love. Don't retreat. Don't be ruined by compromise. Be salt and light. Be in the world, but not of the world. There's a story I read this week about a guy named... uh, John Perkins, he's a well-known African-American leader in Mississippi, leads a ministry that has had a great impact in that region. And one time, about 20 years ago, a group of community leaders got together, and they were talking, including pastors like John Perkins, and they were talking about all the problems in the community, racial strife, poverty, all the things that were going on. And someone just asked the question. You know, we always kind of, when we had these meetings, somebody eventually says, whose fault is this? We want to know. Who to blame? And as it got real quiet, John Perkins said, it's my fault. And this is a man who was working in the community and engaging the community. He's a Bible-believing man. He said, it's my fault. And guys, I think that's terribly instructive for us. We look at our world and we shake our finger. We go to, the world is going to hell in the handbasket. We say all kinds of things. You want to know why it's that way? It's our fault. It's our fault. A predominantly Judeo-Christian country for 200, 300 years going down the drain and we have the numbers and the influence. It's our fault. We left the academy. We left music and media. We left in all kinds of places, and we haven't been influencing with the gospel. It's our fault. Unless you walk around with a guilt complex after today, I want you to know that I feel it too. All the subtle times I could have said something or done something, and I didn't, for Jesus and for his sake. Jesus is calling us to be salt and light, and to actually engage the culture in our workplaces, in our families, in a whole host of places that we can bring the gospel and the presence of Jesus in our lives. Jesus calls us and sees us as having a purpose of changing the world for his sake. Now that brings the question then, what can you do in the future as you get opportunities Well, the first is this. We have to come to grips with the fact that we do live in a post-Christian culture and that we have to start practicing lifestyle evangelism all the time. Not just an occasional project, but all the time. We're always engaging 
our non-Christian friends, neighbors, and family members. Grow and live for Christ in all you do and make a difference where you are right now. Don't think we're going across the pond to do evangelism. Let's do it right here. Our mission field's here. We'll get to the pond one day as a church, but let's do it here right now. Your life is a reflection of the gospel. You know, when we lived in Union County, uh, for 15 years we lived there when I was planning a church and pastoring a church, and we did all kinds of things in our little neighborhood that we really loved. It's called Brandon Oaks. And we did all kinds of cool stuff, the swim team. We did events when they'd get all the neighborhood together, just hanging out and just being with people. We weren't doing anything, any formal stuff. Well, people got to know me as a pastor, and pretty soon they started calling on me. I did the funeral of not one but two teenagers who died who were friends of ours, uh, who were uh, kids of friends of ours. They called me for marital help. They called me and us for all kinds of things that we could do to influence their life just by being with them. No unique agenda. That's what you are called to do. Second, be faithful and courageous for Christ, even in the everyday things you do. James Davison Hunter has this interesting idea. It's called faithful presence. And the idea is this, is that instead of us as a movement, a Bible-believing Christian movement like the evangelicals, targeting one simple thing of just politics to get our agenda across in the world, we should also think of just doing our Christian living wherever we are, whether it's in the marketplace, in our businesses, whether it's, it's in the schools where we're teachers or where our kids are, whether it's uh, in media and the places that desperately need a Christian voice and a Christian influence, to go and just be present and faithful for the long haul. That's the problem with American evangelicalism. We are just impatient we want things now instead of just be faithful for the long haul and watch God work in an extraordinary way. Third thing you can do, not only be faithful and courageous, but I got this from John Stott, and I think he's right. You ready? I know it's going to be surprising coming from a pastor. Do come to church, but not too often. Do come to church, but not too often. We want you to be involved in things going on at SCPC. But if you, as a result, don't hang out with non-Christians among your family, your friends, your neighbors, you aren't being light and salt. You are in the ghetto and diminishing Christ's influence through you. Repent. Dare to love your neighbor. Invite your non-Christian friends over to your house and just eat. Don't, you don't know agenda. Just hang out and just be a Christian eventually. You'll make a difference over time by simply reaching out in love. There's a story of a, of a, of a Christian church in 165 AD. There was a pandemic in the Roman Empire. And Marcus Aurelius was the emperor at the time. And this pandemic swept across all kinds of cities in the empire. The result was thousands were dying. Sometimes the bigger cities, they'd be bringing out hundreds of people a day uh, with the pandemic. The interesting thing and what was notable about this pandemic was this, is that apparently not, uh, most of the people who were leaving the cities were the elite, uh, the Roman elite, including some medical people. 
because they wanted to get away from the pandemic. Do you know who stayed behind? The Christians. The Christians stayed behind and took care of the people who were suffering and loved on them. They put their own lives at risk to care for their neighbors and love them in their struggles. This is what Jesus calls us to, this kind of life. If you are spending time practicing your Christian faith and living out the good life in the different spheres, just in everyday life, just being a Christian, there will be a result. And Jesus tells us what it is in our text today. This is what he says. Did you see this in his text? He says this. He says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus is not advocating ostentation or self-aggrandizement. He even teaches against that in Matthew 6. What he's saying is this. As you live a holy life, as you do small things for Jesus in everyday places where you work and live, God will eventually get the glory in the little acts of love and kindness and influence you do for him. So final thought. How do we respond to this? And what do we do in light of this call to be light and salt? You are light. You are salt. How do we handle it? Well, a few of you may be thinking, wow, Dean, you know, you don't understand. I, I can't make much of a difference. I'm just a student. I'm a mom at home. I have some job that doesn't seem very big, like a big deal or very influential. Well, here's what I tell you. You don't understand how Jesus works. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the low and small people to transform, of all things, the Roman Empire. And why did he do that? So no man can boast. When you feel small, when you feel like you can't make an impact and you just go and be a Christian where you are, Jesus will use that in ways you can't anticipate. For you see, when you think you are small and let live for, G- where G- live for Jesus where you are, Jesus will do great things with little things. Great things with little things. He'll make a difference and change the world through you. Some might say this. <laughs> I, get here, I go here sometimes. Uh, I don't get it. Isn't the world going to burn anyway? <laughs> Why should we even bother? Well, i got to tell you, we of all people should be people of hope. After all, Revelation 14 says plainly that our deeds follow us into eternity with God. Meaning there is an, an effect of when you do something in this world, in the resurrection, it will be made effectual even unto eternity. C.S. Lewis says it's like this. Uh, he tells us why we should be salt and light with the hope of glory coming, the glory of Christ. He says, hope does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves who set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, and the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade 
all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this one. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. Oh man, that's preachable right there. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. That's the picture of glory that Jesus is calling us to. His glory being manifest, us being with him in eternity and enjoying him forever. And out of that glory, we can say this today. We need more, uh, we need more scientists who follow Christ. We need more artists who follow Christ. We need more business leaders who will follow Christ. We need more entertainers and writers who will follow Christ. We need more people in the city council and administrators in state government who follow Christ. We need more bankers who follow Christ. We need more military leaders who follow Christ. We need more medical workers who follow Christ. And yes, indeed, we need more politicians who will follow Christ. Let me put it this way. We need more people who would just show up and be Christian where God has called them. And you know what happens? If you do that, you never know what will happen. You might just change the world. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now. And this is a huge challenge for us as a church. It's too big for us. But our hope, Lord, is that Jesus, you call us to this radical life, the good life where we can live out following you in these strange but beautiful ways that you describe in the Beatitudes, and so we can have an effect in our world. The hard part of this, Lord, is we get discouraged. The hard part is it feels too big. But remind us, Lord, that you call us to do little things for you, and very often you will take those little things and do magnificent things for your kingdom. Teach us your way, Lord. The way of faithfulness, the way of courage, the way of even subtlety in what we do and how we serve so that you will get glory one day, so that you can be glorified as the Holy One, working your holiness through us. In Christ's name, amen.